the book of Esther contains a story that I would describe as extraordinary. It might be a story that we're already familiar with, or perhaps some of us are hearing it for the first time. And like many stories, it's full of emotion, it's full of suspense, but it takes place in a strange and unfamiliar world, the world of the Medes and the Persians, where the laws and customs and practices are very different from what we're used to today. Now, last Sunday, Paul helped us by setting uh, the book of Esther in its context. He talked about where and when this story takes place. And it's a story that, even though it's in the Bible, God isn't mentioned at all. There's no mention of God from the start to the finish, which is one of the reasons why I think this book is an extraordinary book. And because there's no mention of God, it's a story that raises lots of questions for us as we work our way through it. We're left wondering why certain things are said or done or happen in a way that they do. But that also makes it a very interesting book for us to read. So let me just give you a very quick outline of what I want to cover this morning, just to help you to follow what I'm going to be saying. First of all, I want to give a bit of a recap on what happened in chapter one, the beginning of the story, just in case some of you weren't here last Sunday, or perhaps you've forgotten some of the details. And then I want to talk about what happens in chapter two, the chapter that was just read to us, in order to see how the story develops. And then there were two things from chapter two that particularly grabbed my attention. So I'm going to talk about those two things, and hopefully that will help us to see the relevance of this part of the story for our lives today. So let's start with a quick recap of chapter one. In chapter one, we're introduced to King Xerxes and Queen Vashti, and the first chapter of the story is essentially about how and why Vashti loses her position as queen. The story begins with huge celebrations, a banquet lasting 180 days, is followed immediately by another one that lasts for a week. And we're given quite a few details about the second banquet. We're told that it took place in the king's enclosed gardens uh, in the palace. We're told about uh, the decorations. We're told about the, the couches. We're told about the pavement, the goblets, the wine. And everything was designed to show off the king's wealth. And it seems like everyone was invited to this banquet. So it says, from the least to the greatest, all the people who were in the citadel of Susa were invited. But then we learn that not everyone was invited to the king's banquet, because we're told in verse 9 of chapter 1 that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So, The men and the women had their own banquets in different parts of the palace. The men were outside and the women were inside. And that separation might seem strange to us, but it's one of the things that reminds us that this is a different world to the one that we live in. And there isn't any explanation for why there was this separation. But at the end of seven days, imagine it, seven days of drinking as much wine as they wanted... We're told that the king was in high spirits, and probably most of the men were as well. So, 
what does the king do? Well, he wants the queen to come and display her beauty to the people and the nobles. King Xerxes wants to show off Queen Vashti to all the men as the finale of this uh, seven-day banquet and all the celebrations that have gone before. And that seems pretty awful, doesn't it? That sounds terrible. I wonder if we can imagine what that would have been like for Vashti. When I was a student, uh, I played badminton for Southampton University, and we would travel around the country playing matches against other universities, and quite often we would travel with the men's rugby team. And normally in the evening after the matches, there would be some kind of celebrations, and the rugby team had quite a reputation for their post-match drinking and celebrating, which uh, often got very loud and lively and sometimes out of hand. So when I imagine what kind of state these men might have been in at the end of the seven days... It's those images from my student days that come to mind. So put yourself in Vashti's shoes. What would you have done? What would we have done in her position? I think it would have taken a lot of courage for Vashti to have followed the king's command to come into that sort of environment, the only woman present, and to be be shown off in that way. But it would have taken perhaps even more courage to refuse the command as she did because she would have been well aware of the consequences that such an action would have had. And as we read it, seven men were sent to tell her that she needed to come, but she says no. And the king is absolutely furious. He's gone from being super happy and in high spirits to being in a state of complete rage. Imagine it, burning with anger, overtaken by his emotions. This isn't how things were supposed to go. A queen can't just say no to the king and expect to get away with it. So Xerxes consults with the experts, his closest advisors, wise men who understood the times. And according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti because she has not obeyed the king's command? And it's a big deal. The consequence is going to be felt in all of the 127 provinces of this vast empire. The king's advisors, who were all men, are concerned that the queen's behavior is going to cause all the women to despise their husbands. And they're afraid that the situation is going to lead to no end of disrespect and discord. Are they, are they right? I have my doubts. It seems like a complete overreaction to the situation. Even if they're right in their assessment, their solution seems very unlikely to succeed. Their solution is to, well, the best idea they come up with, to avoid all of this disrespect and discord and despising of husbands is to issue a law saying that the husbands need to rule. And it's a law that can't be changed because it's a law of the Medes and Persians. And this sets a pattern for the whole book. This is just the first instance of the king having a proposition brought to him, which he ends up 
making a law that can't be changed and it has to be applied throughout the whole empire. So what happens in chapter 2? Well, moving on, we're introduced to two new characters and these are going to be the main characters uh, for the rest of the book. Their names are Mordecai and Esther, both Persian names. But as we find out quickly, they are outsiders. Their family background is Jewish, not Persian. And we discover that this Jewish identity is something that needs to be kept hidden, but we're not told why. Now, living as foreigners in a foreign land is not easy, especially at the time when this story takes place. It's one thing to choose to go and live in another country, Uh, As many of you know, I lived in France uh, for 14 years, and it was great to have that experience, but it was also very challenging at times. But some people end up living in another country through no real choice of their own, and we see that played out on the news almost daily. At the time of King Xerxes, when a powerful empire conquered another nation, a common strategy was to take the people away from their homes and make them, force them to live in other countries. And if you know the story of Daniel, there are some similarities with with what happens here to Mordecai and Esther. So Daniel was also part of a group who were taken from Israel into exile in Babylon under the king Nebuchadnezzar, the same Nebuchadnezzar that is mentioned here in the second chapter of Esther. And Daniel had been a member of, of the nobility in Israel. And in Babylon, it's interesting, he was given plenty of opportunity to enjoy life. He was given good food, he was given good wine, he was given training in order to be able to take up a position of influence. His name was changed too. And it was a way of integrating, a way of making people forget where they had come from, a way to weaken ties with the past, a way to reduce the desire for revenge or rebellion against the new empire. But more about Daniel a little later on. Chapter 2 of the book of Esther is essentially about how a new queen is chosen and how a plot to assassinate the king is thwarted. And the chapter begins with a reminder that King Xerxes made his decision about Vashti when he was full of rage and anger. And some time has passed, and his anger has calmed, and perhaps there's even a slight sense of regret or loss. So his advisor suggests that the search for a new queen should begin. Now let's think about this. If it was our responsibility how would we go about selecting a new queen for King Xerxes? It's tricky, isn't it? It's probably not a question that we have to answer, although most of us probably at some point in our lives have wondered or are wondering how you go about choosing a husband or a wife. The way that Xerxes goes about his selection It's probably quite shocking to us. It's not surprising that he wants to meet these prospective replacements for Vashti, that they should be brought to his palace, his royal residence. 
In chapter 1, we're told that Vashti was beautiful, and so those who are brought to him have great beauty too. But there's another thing that we're told about these women. We're told that they're young. We don't know how young they were, but apparently being young is a criteria for becoming the new queen. It's mentioned three times in three verses. So obviously that's important, but that's certainly something that would worry us today, thinking about what's going on here. And the idea was for this search to be carried out in every single one of the 127 provinces in the whole empire and for all the beautiful young women to be brought to the capital in Susa. How many? We don't know. And we're not told if these young women were willing candidates or not. It's at least possible, probable perhaps, that these women had no choice in the matter. They were selected on the basis of their age. They had to be young and their physical appearance. And perhaps they had to go whether they wanted to or not. And one of the women was Esther the cousin of Mordecai, who was a Jew and had raised Esther after her parents had died. So we know right away that Esther has faced and experienced a number of challenges in her life, not least of which was losing her parents. Did Esther have any choice in the matter? We just don't know. What we do know is that as soon as she was in the king's palace, she was entrusted to Hegai, who was in charge of the, the harem, harem. Esther was one of many young women and might perhaps have been tempted to hide in the crowd. But that's not what we read here in chapter 2. We don't know exactly what Esther did or said, but she pleased Hegai and won his favour. Immediately, she began to receive preferential treatment. She had beauty treatment, special food, Seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and the best place in the harem. I'm sure we'd like to know why. Was this God's doing in some way? But we don't have any indication at all in the story. And isn't that just like it is for us so often in life? We don't really know what God is doing in the world, or in our particular situations. We don't know. When things seem to go well, we don't know if that's God's doing. If things go badly, we don't know what God is doing. And in my own experience, there are many things that have seemed to have gone well in life, but also there are times when things have gone badly. So is life just random? What determines what happens to us? And how do we interpret the different events and circumstances? Going back to chapter 2, we're told that each of the young women spends a whole year preparing to spend one night with the king. And then they get sent away. And Esther is the one who is chosen to be queen for reasons that we'll get into in just a minute. The chapter ends with, uh, well, another banquet, first of all, and then a plot to assassinate the king, which is a dramatic way to finish the chapter, 
But again, we don't have many details about what happened. Mordecai overhears the plot. He reports it through Queen Esther. It's investigated and found to be true. So the culprits are dealt with decisively. And all of this is recorded in the, king annal, in the king's annals. And the chapter ends. So again, we're not told why Mordecai did what he did. Was he trying to win the, the king's favor? Or was he simply doing what the right thing to do was? It's a detail that's going to become very important in the story later on. And perhaps it shows something about Mordecai's character. Did courage play a part in what he did? But what about us? How do we respond to this strange story? Are we shocked by the way the queen was selected? Many young women taken from their homes, spending this year of preparation, one night with the king, and then discarded so that another candidate could have their turn at trying to please the king? Are we confused as to why Esther had to keep her family background a secret? Are we concerned that there's no mention of God at all? Well, two things stand out to me. The first thing that stood out to me from this chapter was that Esther had a hidden identity. We're not told in chapter 2 why Esther was to keep her identity secret. It's a detail that is going to be important later on, but it's it's mentioned here twice, so it's obviously something that we're supposed to take notice of. And that made me think about our identity, our identity as Christians, as believers, and how often that can be hidden from other people as well. Knowing who we are has an impact on the way that we live. If we think about Jesus, shortly before he was arrested and crucified, he washed his disciples' feet. And in John's Gospel, we're told that at that moment, that the way it's introduced is, is by saying that uh, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. They began to wash his disciples' feet Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. And that enabled him to do what he he did at a very difficult moment in his life. But do we feel a pressure to tell people that we're Christians? Or do we sometimes feel that we have to hide that from people? We're encouraged to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. A few weeks ago, we were thinking about prayer, and one of the prayers that we're encouraged to pray is that God will open a door for his message. And we can always pray for people that God will make his light shine in their hearts. And all of those things we can do without necessarily announcing the fact that we're Christians. But how do we feel about that? Do we sometimes want to hide the fact that we believe in God, that we believe in Jesus The second thing that grabbed my attention was that Esther won the favor 
of everyone. Three times in this chapter we're told that first of all, in verse 9, she wins the favor of Haggai. Then in verse 15, she wins the favor of everyone who saw him, her. And finally in verse 17, she wins the favor of the king. Now there are two words used for favor in this chapter. And finding favor in someone's eyes perhaps reminds us of some of the other stories that we have in the Bible, like Noah, for example. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word for favor there, that's the first time it occurs in the Bible with Noah. And it's often translated by the word grace. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that word is used six times in the book of Esther. Or if we think about uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph in Genesis 39, he also found favor in the eyes of, the, of Potiphar. Um, and uh, the Lord was with Joseph, we're told, and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden when Joseph was spending two years in prison. Or coming back to the story of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that God caused the official who was looking after Daniel to show favor and compassion to him. So this is a familiar thing that keeps coming back. And in the book of Esther, even though there's no mention of God, the fact that this formula, this favor that she found is the same word that is used in the stories of Noah and Joseph and Daniel, where it was God who was involved in bringing favor, makes us realize that God is also involved in this story, even if we don't have his name mentioned. So to wrap this up, what can we learn from the book of Esther, and in particular from this chapter? We don't know if Esther chose to be one of the candidates to become queen. We don't know if Mordecai approved of that or if they just had no choice. We do know that she found favor in the eyes of everyone and in the eyes of the, of the king, and so she was chosen to be queen, which is going to be really important in the story later on. There's no mention of God in this chapter, no mention of prayer or faith or belief, but reading it, we strongly sense that God is at work that God is not absent, even if he's not mentioned. And that's, that's the same for us as well. God is at work in our lives, even if we're not aware of it, even if, we, even if he's not mentioned. And this book raises lots of questions that we don't have answers for. We want to know what God is doing. We want to know where God is involved. But we don't always have the answers to those questions, but that shouldn't discourage us. It's exactly the same in our own lives and in the world around us. We often want to know where God is and what he's doing. The war in Ukraine is an obvious example of that. But when we don't have answers to our questions, and we can sometimes feel like God is absent, is the book of Esther a help to us in times like that? Perhaps it can be. And what we can be sure of because we know God, if we believe in Jesus, is that we're in that position 
only because of God's grace and God's mercy. Those two words that we find in Esther chapter 2. Just as Esther won favor, so we have won favor from God. We have received God's grace and mercy. And that's a reality in our lives as well every day. The fact that Esther had to hide her nationality and her family background can prompt us to think about our identity as believers and whether it's hidden or not. And even though God isn't mentioned in Esther, the phrase that's repeated in chapter 2 about Esther finding favor reminds us of other stories where it clearly is God at work. And we can be thankful because we've received God's favor.